You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome to Senior Rx Radio. I'm Dr. Jaron Stout, and I am Dr. Joanne Payo, and we are your hosts of Senior Rx Radio. Today we have Dr. Elizabeth Pogi with us, and we actually had the opportunity to interview her last year, but we had such a great time with her that we decided to invite her back. Yes. Welcome back, Dr. Pogi from the esteemed Midwestern University College of Pharmacy, Glendale. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Interesting information for those listening to the podcast. I taught Jaren several years ago at Midwestern University, and I'm happy to be here again today to talk a little bit about anticoagulation. And hopefully I can teach you guys a thing or two that maybe you didn't already know about these direct oral anticoag agents or um, maybe our oldie but goodie warfarin. So during the last episode, which I highly recommend to our listeners to go back and listen to, we discussed a lot of clinical points in regards to anticoagulation. We discussed the four direct oral anticoagulants, and we also touched on warfarin. And so on today's episode, I was hoping to dive into some of the drug interactions. So first of all, when Eliquis and Xarelto, when those first came out, there was a lot of talk about an interaction with diltiazem and amiodarone as they increased the area under the curve. However, more and more data came out, and it actually showed that even with that increase in AUC, there was no clinical significance. It didn't increase risk of adverse events or bleeding or anything like that. And so I'm wondering, when I look at some of the anticonvulsants that induce metabolization and reduce the efficacy of the drug, such as phenytoin, carbamazepine, so on and so forth, they, when they interact with one of these, they interact with all of them, you know, Eliquis, Xarelto, Pradaxa. And so I'm wondering, what is the clinical significance of these anticonvulsants and what would we do if there is a clinically significant interaction? Yeah, that's a great question. That comes up a lot in my practice. We have thousands of patients actually in my practice that are on these direct oral anticoags. And I practice in an ambulatory care environment. So I get this question quite a bit. And so let's go back to thinking about what types of substrates these particular agents are. So dabigatran, apixaban, adoxaban, rivaroxaban, they're all considered to be P-glycoprotein substrates. And then they all, to some degree, are CYP3A4 substrates. So when we think about the drugs like you were talking about, amiodarone, diltiazem, dronetarone, verapamil, those drugs we're commonly seeing in our cardiology practice, those drugs are all inhibitors of either P-glycoprotein or CYP3A4. Because of that, they're going to slightly raise those direct oral anticoag levels. The thought process is, is that if they raise these levels slightly, that they could potentially increase the risk of bleeding a little bit, but that hasn't been found in practice. And so they've really felt like this is not a very clinically significant interaction. The same type of thing is seen with dabigatran and proton pump inhibitors, by the way. Remember, dabigatran is given in that acidic core. And if we use a proton pump inhibitor, we can actually cause an interaction there where we can decrease how much dabigatran we absorb, but they've said it's not a clinically significant interaction. So those are some of the interactions that are considered not clinically significant. 
Our inducers, on the other hand, things like carbamazepine, phenytoin, phenobarbital, St. John's wort, those are actually going to reduce our direct oral anticoag levels enough that they are considered clinically significant. And we should not be utilizing the direct oral anticoags with um, those significant inducers. The recommendation there is to actually use warfarin and not to utilize the direct oral anticoags. I'd like to once again lead our audience to one of my favorite articles, and it's available free online. It's the 2018 European Guide for Use of Non-Vitamin K Antagonist Oral Anticoags in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation. They have a beautiful chart in here with these commonly utilized agents as well as non-commonly utilized agents that you may get asked about in your clinical practice. I was asked the other day about an oncology agent that I was not familiar with, and I was able to go to this guide and really figure out what that drug would do to my direct oral anticoag level, whether it would raise it, whether it would lower it, so I could figure out what clinical significance that I felt like there was to that. So beautiful article. I highly suggest that you check it out. Great to know. Thank you very much. And also, since you brought up the uh, PPI interaction, I'm not sure what, what you think of this, but there's a lot of conflicting data on omeprazole with Plavix, right? So some say it's not clinically significant. Some say it is. And so I want your thoughts on it. I have a theory as to the reason behind the conflicting data, but what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question as well. Once again, we're getting back to these isoenzyme interactions, right? So SIP interaction there where Mm -hmm. if we utilize omeprazole with Plavix, that we may actually decrease the efficacy of our clopidogrel because our clopidogrel needs to be in its active formulation. My thought process on that is that the data is all over the board. And so if we can avoid that particular proton pump inhibitor and utilize a alternative agent like an H2RA or utilize one that's maybe less likely to interact, like pantoprazole, that I would go with that mechanism. The differences in the interaction that I think is some people could be rapid or slow metabolizers of that 2C19, which is that potential interaction there. So for some patients, it could actually be more clinically significant than for other patients. That's kind of my theory, but I think that hasn't been proven. Once again, one of those things that that as more data comes out, it just seems to be all over the board. And so doing what you the best you can for the patient in front of you is probably the best suggestion. I love that you just said that because that's actually my theory. I think there's a pharmacogenetic interaction that we haven't that is causing this conflicting data. And I've only thought of that recently because I started to implement pharmacogenetic testing into my practice. And I think I see the Plavix interaction probably more often than than most genetic interactions. So I'm really glad to hear you say that. That, that confirms my, uh, my way of thinking. So love it. Well, we're smart people. Yes. <laughs> doing the best we can every day. That's what we're doing. Every day. And then speaking more on Plavix and omeprazole, what I like that you said is that we should try to maybe, if possible, use a different medication like pantoprazole. From what I've seen, the interaction was mainly with Plavix and omeprazole or esomeprazole. So, and like you said, the studies are all over the place. So it's a good thing that you mentioned doing pantoprazole or a another class of medication for that acid reduction. And then speaking of drug interactions, 
you kind of went into this. What are your thoughts of using a medication like Eliquis and an antiplatelet like Plavix? Yeah, so that's going to open up a lot of interesting information out there too that's relatively new. And I don't want to get into it too much, but you know, the data on triple therapy, dual therapy, antiplatelet, triple antithrombotic therapy is emerging and evolving. My current thought process on the whole thing is that, first of all, we have two issues here. Let's think about a patient that's on aspirin that now needs a direct oral anticoag, right? They maybe have stable CAD, and now they need a direct oral anticoag because they have new onset atrial fibrillation. I think you really need to think about their other risk factors. Is it a secondary prevention patient? Because then the aspirin, I think, is definitely indicated to continue with the direct oral anticoag. If it's a primary prevention patient, most of the time that aspirin is not indicated to continue. Now, when we think about what happens post-ACS, right? So patients have a heart attack. They end up in the hospital and they either get stents, they don't get stents, they're medically managed. Contemporary practice, from to just sum it up, I think there's a lot of different things that can really lead you one way or the other. But what I've seen in contemporary practice is that you start with triple therapy for a very short period of time after stent placement. So you would maybe do triple therapy with clopidogrel, a direct oral anticoag, and aspirin for one week to one month one month at the most. And then the idea is really to drop the aspirin and just continue the direct oral anticoag plus the clopidogrel for that 12-month time period. And then after the 12 months, perhaps drop the clopidogrel and go back to the aspirin. Now, continuation of that aspirin beyond 12 months is very controversial. We don't really know what to do. Most of our trials, you know, only went up to 12 months. And so I look at the patient's CAD load. So, you know, have they had multiple stents? Do they have severe PVB as well? And so that can really help me determine whether or not I should continue that aspirin along with my direct oral anticoag. I find that I personally want to deprescribe aspirin in my older adults more often than my cardiologists are willing to deprescribe aspirin, actually. And so oftentimes, I'll be wanting to deprescribe aspirin where I feel like a patient has pretty stable CAD. They had one stent five years ago, and now we're putting them on a direct oral anticoag. And perhaps my cardiologist still wants to keep that low-dose aspirin on board. But what I can say clinically is there's a few things we shouldn't be seeing. Triple therapy for any longer than a month, we absolutely should not be seeing. And what I mean by triple therapy is direct oral anticoag plus a clopidogrel plus aspirin. Also, I think that there's very limited role for high-dose aspirin, especially in combination with a direct oral anticoag. And then with our older adult population, aspirin for primary prevention has been thrown out the window. So if your patients don't have any sort of disease, atherosclerotic disease, I would say aspirin is probably not the way to go, especially if you have a direct oral anticoag on board. Very interesting. So I have a, a provider who, when talking about strokes, I don't know if this correlates in the same manner. Obviously, strokes would be a shorter duration. If they have a stroke while on aspirin, then they say, okay, we'll do the the dual antiplatelet for however, three weeks or three months, whatever it's supposed to be, depending on the occlusion, and then put them on mono with, with clopidogrel because they obviously failed mono with, with aspirin. 
What do you think of that? Yeah. So I have a few questions. My first question is, was the patient actually taking the aspirin when they had the stroke? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing I ask about. And then is it a stroke of atherosclerotic origin or is it cardioembolic? So let me dive into that for just a second for our listeners. If you're like, what did she just say? Remember that (laughs) stroke can come from two different areas. So stroke can come from your heart in terms of atrial fibrillation, where you formed a blood clot and then the stroke went up to your brain. That's considered a cardioembolic stroke. And that type of stroke should be treated with a direct oral anticoag. So does your patient have untreated atrial fibrillation or undiagnosed atrial fibrillation where they should really be on a direct oral anticoag? Are you really convinced it's a stroke from atherosclerotic origin? And if you are, which means it's a stroke from atherosclerosis or plaque buildup, then antiplatelets are definitely the way to go. I think the contemporary evidence right now post-stroke is to put patients on. You can do dual antiplatelet therapy for three weeks after. That's based off some pretty weak data from, if I remember right, it's in an Asian population, but it's out there and some providers like to do it, especially if patients are you know, having their second or third stroke. And then I see providers doing a lot of different things. I see some providers going with high-dose aspirin. I see other providers switching to a drug like clopidogrel. I think any of those options are okay. There is some older data, and I won't be able to cite the publication for you. I'm sorry, Sharon, but there is some older data that did compare aspirin to clopidogrel in stroke prevention and found that clopidogrel was slightly better than aspirin. And so perhaps that's what your provider's thinking about when he's going in that path. But I think it's an okay path. I think path to not take is dual antiplatelet therapy in that patient for any longer than three weeks. Okay. Okay. Because I I read, I think it was uh, in PubMed or something that the stroke Dual antiplatelet would be three weeks for, you know, occlusion zero to 49%. And it would be three months for 50 to 99. So would the three, the the high occlusion apply more to the cardioembolic? I don't, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe somebody in our audience can write into you and let you know. I'm not sure that the amount of the occlusion is related to where the, where the stroke came from. That might make sense. You know, cardioembolic, it's a blood clot versus atherosclerosis plaque rupture. So, but I'm not sure what the differences of those two would be. And I'm not 100% familiar with continuing dual antiplatelet past the three-month time period. Also, just a quick question. What do you think of effiant as a direct interchangeable agent with Plavix? Is that some or does it depend on indication? So I think it definitely depends on indication. So we're really talking about our other alternatives to Plavix. So we have Ticagrelor, also Brilenta, known as Brilenta. And then we have Effiant, which is a Prazagrel, which you're probably seeing more commonly in your practice. My thoughts on these agents is these agents are much more potent. So therefore, you are going to potentially increase the risk of bleeding when you're utilizing these agents in place of clopidogrel. As we're talking about anticoagulation therapy, I definitely want to point out that if you're utilizing one of these PGY12 inhibitors with a direct oral anticoag, I would always recommend clopidogrel. That's how most of the studies, that's the agent that most of the studies utilize. And I think your bleed rate is going to be much lower when you're utilizing it in 
in addition to a direct oral anti-coag. And there's good data to support that. And you can definitely argue that. Now, when you're just utilizing, you know, a PGY12 inhibitor after stent placement, let's say, What's the difference between prazagril and clopidogrel? Well, you know, prazagril did show some superiority in terms of uh, ability to prevent restenosis after ACS. And it's really most important in that first 30 days post ACS or post stent placement. And so I would say that my main thought process with Prazagril and utilization of that agent is that um, we should utilize that agent in our highest risk patients and try to use it for at least the first 30 days afterwards. And then after that, if you have some bleed risk, then you could go down and maybe use a less potent drug like Clopidogrel. So that's how I currently see that agent being utilized in practice. Okay, very, very useful. Thank you. And uh, just also another question. I have a, a few providers that have a difficult time with understanding that post-VTE, so for instance, you know, it's, we're supposed to treat a clot for three to six months. If it's a first-time clot or a provoked clot, then it's just the three to six months and then you stop. If it's a recurrent clot or an unprovoked clot, then you do three to six months on the treatment dose and then you do a preventive dose for lifelong after that. I have some providers who have a difficult time understanding that you're supposed to use the preventive dose and not maintain the treatment dose for lifelong treatment. What is a a good way to educate them on, on stuff like this? Yeah, so I think let's go back a little bit to that low dose direct oral anticoags for extended VTE treatment. I talked about this at annual. So those of you that are listening, um, if you went to annual several years ago, I presented the data from these two studies. And this is really data on apixaban and rivaroxaban. And apixaban study was Amplify Extend and rivaroxaban study was Einstein Choice. The important thing about this study is these patients had their first unprovoked VTE and they were pretty low risk for reoccurrent patients. And they only switched down to this lower dose after six months of that initial treatment dose. And in this particular, in both of these studies, one of the limitations is they had really low rates of VTE and also really low rates of bleeding. And the study compared a pixaban, Amplify Extend compared a pixaban to placebo, and rivaroxaban was compared to aspirin in the Einstein choice study. And with these low rates of reoccurrent VTE, some proponents against um, this method say that this potential study included too low of risk patients in order to really generalize that for all of my patients. So I'll give you a few examples of a patient where I would not recommend this extended low dose. Oncology, a cancer patient, patient with active cancer. I would not go with this low prophylactic dose. Those patients have much higher risk for clotting. And I definitely think that they should probably receive the full therapeutic anticoagulant dose. Also, if you have a patient that has one of the severe thrombophilias, you have a patient that maybe has had multiple clots, I think as a provider, you could argue that this data doesn't extrapolate very well to those patients because remember, the patients in this study, they had their first unprovoked VTE and they were overall relatively low risk for VTE reoccurrence. The average age in this study too was about 
55 to 60, if I remember off the top of my head. So remember that as well, that, you know, maybe our older patients that have, if they have a higher VTE risk and other VTE risk factors, some of your providers may tend to want to continue that full anticoagulation dose. Once again, it all goes back to the benefit versus the risk, right? When we, what's the risk of clotting and then what's the risk of bleeding and how do we minimize both of those risks, right? We want to minimize our risk for clotting, but also minimize our risk for bleeding. Love it. It's like no matter how much you read up on uh, anticoagulation, you you can never learn all of it. It's always, there's always more to learn from it. So I, I love having you on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, there's all this new stuff coming out every single day in terms of anticoagulation. And so it's great to be able to catch up and catch our audience up with some of the latest and new information. So we talked a lot about the direct oral anticoagulants, but let's not forget about the stepdaughter here, warfarin. So you mentioned before we would use warfarin if, you know, if we were having drug interactions with some of the other medications that you mentioned in the beginning of the show. Last episode, you also mentioned warfarin would be a good alternative for patients that had renal or hepatic dysfunction. Did I get that correctly? Sure. Yeah, there is some emerging data in terms of renal dysfunction and the utilization of a Pixaban as well, though. And so don't forget that you can use a Pixaban. It's actually in the labeling in end-stage renal disease at the recommended package labeling dose if you're treating atrial fibrillation, not VTE. With VTE, we should still be utilizing warfarin in our patients that have severe hepatic or renal impairment. There's also some emerging data just retrospectively looking at patients with hepatic dysfunction, and that's an emerging area that I'm keeping my eye out. But also don't forget that if a patient has a mechanical heart valve, that's a really important indication for warfarin and that those patients need to be on warfarin lifelong and that the direct oral anticoags have no place in the treatment of that disease state. So when we interviewed you last time, you know, the world's different now. We're in a pandemic. And one of the big things that we discussed with warfarin is the frequent monitoring of the medication, testing the INR. What are your thoughts on having patients doing their INR readings at home and having them dose it similar to how we have patients do a sliding scale of insulin? Yeah, home INR monitoring and home management is an interest area of mine. I actually, when this first came out in 2015, maybe, actually did a publication on home INR testing. And we did a trial where we included some patients. And what we actually found is that patients that were home testing had better overall time and therapeutic range and better control. So I think home testing is really wonderful. But what I really like to reemphasize when I talk to a patient about home testing is that I think it should be home testing, not home management. And you mentioned something there that I definitely am not really on board with, which is having patients do their own dosing, similar to like a sliding scale insulin type dosing. I think a lot of different things can happen and that patients need to continue to be in touch with the clinician. And so I think if their INR is fine and they're just going to continue with what they're doing, by all means, perfect. But if their INR is off, I would like to have them be in touch with the healthcare provider. And so I would really reiterate with my patients when I would do home testing is that this is home testing, not home management. And you need to 
be consistently calling me with your results and we need to be talking about it. And I don't want to lose touch with you because it's really important that we make sure that we can keep your warfarin well controlled. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Pogi. We always have fun, you know, speaking with you. Unfortunately, we're already out of time and you're just amazing. So thank you so much for coming on today's show. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.